Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to the Deal Room Podcast, brought to you by Aspect Legal. Today's episode is part two of an exciting two-part series with Mark Ostrin of Strategic Transactions. In part one, we discuss some of the key elements from the 2016 and 2017 Australian M&A Review Report, which is a report produced by Mark and his team every year as they track the movements and trends for all mid-market reported M&A activity occurring within Australia. Based on this report, Mark highlighted the opportunities available for mid-market businesses through the use of technology and intellectual property. He also walked us through the major reasons why a buyer buys a business and why it's integral for sellers to grasp this tactical concept. And finally, we ended part one with an insightful discussion on earnouts. So if you missed part one, I recommend that you check it out after listening to this episode. Just visit our website or pop over to podcasts on your iPhone and look for episode 24. Meanwhile, in this episode, Mark runs us through his checklist of considerations that businesses ought to prepare or consider before going to market. We will also identify some threats in the M&A space that you need to be aware of. And finally, we close this series with Mark's hot tips for accountants, brokers, advisors, and sellers. You won't want to miss it. So here we go. Ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to The Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real-life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. So, Mark, do you have a checklist of considerations of what a business should be thinking about You know, five years out, you mentioned that they should be preparing, you know, well in advance of of a sale. So do do you have a checklist for what they should be thinking about in advance? Yeah, look, look, I I do actually. There's about sort of seven or eight things that really, really come to mind when it comes to, um, you know, uh, an owner sort of planning, planning an exit. The first one is inevitably economies of scale. All right. You, you have a situation where if a group of businesses merge together, they'll achieve an increase in revenue or a decrease in costs by, by merging functions. Great example of that, doctor surgeries. Between 1983 and 2014, the percentage of doctors practicing individually dropped from 41% to 17%. Wow. That, that, I mean, that's quite amazing, but it's, it, it's fairly rational if you think about the the overhead that uh, doctors would incur in treating a patient relative to the overheads now of, of being one doctor in a uh, group surgery. Mm. Ten years ago, my dentist used to be also my dental hygienist. Mm. Uh, and now it's much, much simpler for, you know, for, for a group of three or four dentists to have one hygienist. Mm. You know, the hygienist is cheaper than the dentist, etc. And so in this checklist context, are you sort of saying, well, you know, if owners of businesses can identify these trends, then they can get on board. Say, for example, we're talking about economies of scale right now. They can yes. get on board and plan themselves into a situation where either, number one, they'll be a good target if there's going to be a, a buy-up in the future, or number two, they're, they're executing the, um, the acquisitions. They're the one mm-hmm. going about buying up. Is that what you're sort of talking about here? 
it's always best to do the stuff yourself and earn the margins yourself rather than have somebody else do it for you. Yeah. So for example, if I was a if I if I was a single dentist and I was looking at an exit in the next five years or so, I'd be saying, okay, well let's just rationalize the way that I use my time at the moment and think about potentially getting in uh, two or three other dentists and a hygienist mm. before somebody else does it for me. Yeah. All right. I'd look at the way that other people had corporatized it and and, and facilitate it that way. Now, the, the other thing specifically to doctors is that the, the doctors are typically told by the, um, uh, you know, by the private equity businesses that are actually merging them that they have to stay on board for several years and they have to maintain a certain level of profitability in order to receive the full level of a payout, the earnout. Mm. Okay, now here what the dentist is doing is promising that at some stage in future they will keep they will they will grow these profits but far far better have a better valuation in the first place then you don't need to make promises in order to earn the entire, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the entire earn out. Yes, mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That makes complete sense. Mm. So take the initiative before someone else does and takes and gets a cut out of it. <laughs> mm. And, and you know, mm. some of these things are hard, hard things for business owners to do because often the skill or, or the uh, talent that got the business yeah. where it is to this point is a different type of skill and talent that is required to be able mm. to look at these other additional areas you're talking about and, and mm. work out how to strategize. And, and maybe this comes yes. back to what why it's useful to to get external assistance in this process. Okay. I want to give a plug here to the accountancy <laughs> profession. Oh, that, and they, uh, our listeners who are accountants they, will love that. Go for it, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they, they deserve, I have to say, I, I, I've watched the evolution of the profession over the last five years and really, really noted just how enthusiastic quite a large number of accountants are with regards to overall yeah. business planning. And they, in many, many cases, are the people that that are actually taking the initiative and saying, hang on, let's just look, uh, you know, uh, uh, the revenues you're generating and your costs, and let's just see, is there a better way to do this? Now, we've done a lot of work with, uh, with the accountancy profession over the last six months. And through a lot of the work that we were doing, we came up with this service called mm-hmm. Value Discovery. Now, can I can I just just talk you through Please, go the, sort it. of the, the the rationale by this? Everybody, the, the most common question that's asked by clients of their accountants is, "Can you get me to pay this tax next year?" <laughs> we'll ignore that one. <laughs> we'll ignore that question, and <laughs> we'll ignore that question, and we'll take the second second most common question that uh, the clients ask to the accountants, which is, what is my business worth? Okay? Yeah. What is my business worth? And the accountant used to shrug and say, well, I guess people in your industry get a multiple of three, which is pretty mm. meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. So we, we came up with this thing where we said, let's not go and do a formal APS 225 valuation on behind the things. Those types of valuations are inevitably quite conservative. Let's just work out what the market would pay for a business of your caliber at the moment if it was to go to market. And then let's just work out what you actually want to sell your business for and and through that assess Mm. a value gap behind it. And so Myself and uh, my, my business partner, a, a man much, much uh, cleverer 
than I am came up and we used this, you know, we used this database of a thousand transactions and we looked at average transaction values and we looked at average transactions by industry and we also looked at the way that motivates buyers and how much buyer pressure there is and came up with a with a series of algorithms that actually predicted mm-hmm. value and we tested and tested and tested this and we got down within uh, we got down to within a sort of a, a 10 to 15% variance between what we predicted a business is worth and what it what it actually got to to in the market and and the way that we did that is that we looked at the key success factors for a business in the future. What are buyers going to be looking for in a business? So, for example, uh, we'll take a certain industry. I was going to say, yeah. you know I'm going to ask you right now, well, what are they? <laughs> yeah, it, it's different for each industry. Uh-huh. It's different for industries. So, so every industry has its own grading system and we know what buyers are asking for. And so one particular industry, uh, I've, I've got to report on my desk at the moment, I'm looking at the six key factors that are how much can the business automate to reduce costs? How much access does the business have to technology? Can the business, is the business able to compete in a tender situation? And how much ability does the business have to expand or contract its operations in line with market demand? So whatever business you've got, you can take your business to to, to your accountant and say, tell me what the market value of this is worth. They, uh, in association with strategic transactions, can use our value discovery service. We can look at these kind of things and say, okay, this is what your business is worth now. This is what you've got to do in order to get the value of that business up. Mm. All right. And so let's just, for people who are interested in it, maybe yeah. just now let people know where they can find out a little bit more about that element, you know, particularly right. for accountants who are listening. So can we find out about this on your website? Look, I, I, I assume that you'll, you'll post all various details about we myself. Will. I'm really yes. happy to talk to uh, anybody that wants to have it. I, as you can tell, I love chatting about this kind of stuff. So I'm really happy to, to talk to anybody. All you need to do is go to strategictransactions.com.au right. and, uh, and you'll find uh, details about all, all of uh, the value discovery uh, on the side. And we've also launched a, a free service as well, which is a bit of a taster. It's called Quick Value. So you can go and you can answer 14 very, very carefully constructed questions about your business and get the value spat back at you within a few minutes. Wow, that is clever, <laughs> Mark. I like it. I it, it like is. it a lot. I must admit, the four, choosing the fourteen questions and phrasing was such an enormous challenge. It was easier. It was more. It was easier to write a hundred questions than it was to write fourteen. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wow. But we got there. But we you got, got there. there to fourteen. There. I love Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I love it. So it shouldn't take users more than about ten minutes. Okay, good. Okay. And so that's for businesses as well as, I guess, accountants who can go and check out how it works. We would expect the accountant to the, the business the, the, the business to do it or the accountant to publicize it, the business to go to the accountant and say, this is where I am at the moment. This is where I need to get to. Can you help me? And if mm. the accountant looks at the business blankly, then go to another accountant mm, mm. because the difference between the good and the bad accountants, the, the, the gulf is getting wider now. 
Mm. And this is, I, I mean, you know, for any accountants who are listening, I guess mm. this is an opportunity for accountants. I've mentioned it a few times in previous podcasts, but I, I think there is an opportunity in the industry as well for accountants who really want to jump on to this sort of element, you know, in, in providing more than just compliance for their Absolutely. client base, you know, because clients want more than just the compliance as well, you know, so. Um, totally agree with you. Yeah. And look, I've talked a lot in previous podcasts about technology being a threat perhaps to the accounting industry. And this is one of the ways that accountants can diversify the value that they're providing. Oh, absolutely. And look, accountants love our models as well. They, they love being involved with the models as well. Their, their natural affinity towards mathematics. We always make sure that whenever we're producing a merger model or an acquisition model or valuation model for anybody, we always want to get the accountants involved. Yeah. You know, yeah. it really is, you know, that, that stuff is just beautiful whenever you see it. I'm so, I love Excel. I'm sorry. Maybe some people don't share my passion, but, but there you go. <laughs> Well, you have it. You're outed now as an Excel lover. There you <laughs> <Okay>. go. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, look, we were talking originally about the checklist that you had, and mm. I think we've made it to point number one here, okay. economies of scale. <laughs> okay. All right. Here's a few more. Okay. First thing, geographical expansion. Yeah. What are we doing really, really well in our state that can be re- replicated in another state? Now, I had um, a client maybe uh, two or three years back. They were, I would say, the world's most efficient company for cleaning up graffiti. Right. Wow. That's a niche niche service. <laughs> Absolutely. And they, they only operated in New South Wales, uh-huh. okay, and they only did public work for councils. But the owner had introduced such, well, first of all, you had technical innovation with regards to scheduling so that he knew exactly where any van was at any point in time or anything like that. But he'd also formed a partnership with somebody who had produced and patented a paint matching system. Okay, so typically when a um, when a graffiti truck comes across a, a you know some some graffiti, they will take a sample of the paint next to the graffiti. They'll go down to the local paint store, get the match from the local paint store, and they'll go back to the scene of the crime. Mm. Now, with the technology that had been acquired by the owner, the van could on site mix samples of the paint quantities of less than 50 milliliters and basically get the job done in a third of the time. Now, if you mm-hmm. get the job done in a third of the time, it basically means that you can, you know, you need, a, you need two thirds less vans or you can, you can price your business two thirds, uh, two, you know, two thirds as cheap or something like that. And of course mm. they were winning all the tenders. Mm. And so what the owner had produced Working 20 hours a week now, by the time he'd set it up, was a system that not only had IP in it, but was instantaneous, instantaneously able to be duplicated anywhere. It was a beautiful little system in itself, and of mm. course, and of course, the the, the natural, you know, the natural uh, acquirers for something like this were the large 
graffiti and cleaning companies in all the other states in Australia. So you can see where the value comes from something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Wow. Mm. That's a really good example. Tell you what, bet he had his intellectual property protected though, Mark. Uh, I, believe that he, I believe that he did. I think he may have even used aspect in order to get it done. <laughs> all right. So geographic expansion. Okay, so I geogra- love that example. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, gain market share. I mean, look at look at an acquirer. You know, an acquirer can either build the products themselves, or they can go and buy another company. Well, what are the risks of what are the risks of building the product yourself rather than simply just going and buying uh, buying someone else's business? So sometimes, you know, an acquirer will look at products that they want to develop themselves, but actually it's much, much cheaper just to go to market and, and buy it itself. And, you know, that's, you know, that, that, that's the story of, of most tech companies. Hmm. I, mean, wh- I, I, I mean, I think one of the largest M&A transactions in history was, was Facebook paying $19 billion for WhatsApp, which hmm. was a, a technology company that had $10 million in revenue. Hmm. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was absolutely phenomenal simply because they judged that it was cheaper just to buy several million customers, all right, and the technology in place and to build it themselves. Mm. And of course, they did the right thing because now they've got a billion customers doing it. Mm. Right? But that's, a, but that, that's, a, that's a, an extreme example. Mm. Next thing, you can acquire customers or you can acquire distribution channels. I've got another good example of that, actually. Well, actually, there's a, a colleague of mine who owned a nail business. And he couldn't get into the hardware chain. So he went and bought his uh, nearest competitor who was oh, already sorry. in Mitre 10. And when we say nail, we mean I, I, here I'm, I'm picturing hammer and nail, right? Yes, the, hammer this and kind nail, of nail. Yes. Okay. Yep. Yes. Uh-huh. yes. Those businesses did exist in the 90s. I don't think they exist <laughs> now, but, um, but it's. it's it's a great example of when you couldn't when you couldn't get into a Bunnings or a Home Hardware or a Mitre 10 or something like that. You simply just go and buy the competitor that's already there. Yeah. So yeah. distribution's an issue. A, um, a food company that I assisted, a bread company that I assisted, produced bread, bought a garlic bread company, all right? Mm-hmm. The, the rationale behind that was because the, the bread company was already involved in the, the, the you know the supermarket wars with with Coles and Woolworths that were setting up their own bakery divisions and they were saying okay well if we're going to fight them on one front which is fresh bread let's go and fight them on two fronts by by fighting them over the refrigerated section so let's buy a garlic bread company all right and then mm, we can get an understanding well, then we can get an understanding from the frozen and refrigerated goods people about the way they see their market evolving. Mm. So you had that. And also it was actually quite convenient because if you can buy one of your customers, you can make sure that your customer always stays with you as well. Mm. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so that's diversification. I, I think we've probably covered off uh, – intellectual property as well. Yeah. And um, the other thing is, of course, uh, is, is, is a defensive acquisition where you think that your competitor is going to eat, eat you up if you don't buy something. And so you've got the pressure to, to buy. Now, mm. those are good reasons to buy. They're, they're, but there are many, many bad acquisitions as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think there's some statistic that was floating around a, a few years ago that basically said that more than 50% of uh, mergers and acquisitions fail. Mm. fail to achieve a decent return. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of rational reasons for that, like the fact that the integration was done badly and all the things that I guess the listeners can realize are things that can go wrong. But sometimes a lot of the buying decisions in the first place are absolutely crazy. Mm. And the bigger the company, the more crazy the buying decision. 
Mm, <laughs> groupthink mm. is groupthink is a wonderful thing. You have an an idea that's fixated between the management, and they think about things over a period of time, and their thinking becomes narrow, and they become mm. fixated on something, and they have to do something. This ego. Another interesting thing is where you get a digression in the objectives of the owners, which may be the shareholders and the management. Yeah. You know, the management want to do things like become more powerful, have corner offices, say that they, you know, uh, say that they're in charge of a business that's, you know, that's worth 500 million rather than 200 million or something like that. And you get a, a history of the most crazy acquisitions that mm. take place. Now, I'm not saying that people in the mid market will be the benefit, the beneficiary of them all the time. But quite frankly, some of the time. <laughs> mm, yeah. And and look, I, I guess, you know, it's, it's really an interesting statistic that you talk about here mm. about more than 50% of mergers and acquisitions failing. And, and you've listed all of these great reasons for an acquisition. Mm. What should organisations be doing to sense check this? Do you work with organisations in this phase when they're looking at growing through acquisition? And, you, and, and if you do, how? Okay. Look, uh, if when I'm working on the buy side, it's very, very important that my client, the prospective buyer, gets to, uh, gets balanced judgment from me. Now, in most cases, and I have to be honest with you, in most cases, I will advise against a straightforward acquisition first off. I would typically say, okay, can we achieve what we're intending to achieve any other way. Is there a possibility of a strategic partnership? Is there a possibility mm. of a joint venture? What can we do that actually helps you obtain as, as some of the benefits but actually de-risks you? Mm. And so it's incumbent upon me to not necessarily do something that suits my primary goal, mm-hmm. okay, and but suits the, the, the client's growth objectives. Yeah. And that's a very, very important criteria. And I think the client, the buying client, needs to consider that when they're negotiating with the advisor about success fees rather than consulting fees. Yeah, that's right? it. That's an interesting one. Absolutely. Yeah. Because if a, if a client that wants to buy remunerates a broker based on a successful transaction, then the motivation of the broker is to buy a business on behalf of the buyer for the highest possible price, so that they yeah. can earn the highest possible commission. Yeah. I mean, that is a, a ridiculous state of affairs. Mm. So that's definitely one word of caution. So make sure you remunerate the people that are working for you in a most appropriate way and look at alternatives to acquisition and really, really think them through. Now, I think there's a whole bunch of other things as well that I, I, I sort of want to chuck in here. And the first thing is probably something that is you'll, you'll hear time and time again. Consider now the speed of technology transaction mm-hmm. transition. Sorry, the fact that an owner's business value is depreciating faster and faster in this economy. There are mm. there are more and more barriers to entry. They're getting lower and lower and lower. We've got globalization of labor. I, I, I sat with four or five people today, and they're all small business owners. Every single one of them outsources more than 50% of all of their work offshore. And yeah. these are businesses with less than 10 people in them. Yeah. And, and what sort of industries were, were these businesses in? You know, there were, oh, I'm just thinking about it. There was one person who 
basically manages home units. Uh-huh. Sorry, rental home units for, for holidaymakers. Right. All right. So she has a very, very scalable business. And there's a lot of administration, et cetera, um, involved in that. Mm. There's somebody who is producing training packages mm. on managing cash flow, particularly um, invoices payable. Mm-hmm. And she's doing a lot of uh, social media work, quite a uh, you know uh, materials production, video production, those sorts of things. Again, a lot of that work is is being done offshore. A lot of the work that I do now is is also offshore as well now. And I, I mm-hmm. do tend to find that once you get a process that that is easily explainable and can be broken up into pieces, etc. Sometimes it, it is better for that process to, to go offshore. Absolutely. I completely agree. You know, and, mm. and we're, we're a bit the same. And so I really, I have seen the changing landscape in this particular element that you're talking mm. about right now, the, the use of offshore workforce particularly drive quickly over the last, certainly over the last five years, Mm. been a really quick ramp up. So it does lead you to wonder, you know, where will we be in five to 10 years time? Right. And it's a really good point. So, you know, this is maybe a threat to the ongoing value of businesses that are, that are based on the value of, of a workforce, I guess. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. It's the mm. IP that sits behind it, not necessarily the workforce. It's the IP. Mm. Yeah. That mm. sits there and the processes that the, that the people go through. Let's take a short break. When we get back, Mark identifies some threats in the M&A space. And then we close this series out with Mark's hot tips for accountants, business brokers, advisors and sellers. And that's next. This is Joanna Oki and you are listening to The Deal Room, a podcast brought to you by Aspect Legal. Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition or to discuss how we can work with your clients if you're an advisor in this space. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au or if it's easier, just shoot me an email at joanna at aspectlegal.com.au. Welcome back. Earlier, Mark walked us through his checklist of considerations that businesses ought to be thinking about in advance before going to market. This time, we'll continue the conversation and identify some threats lurking out there in the M&A arena before closing off with some actionable tips for anyone involved in this space. What other threats do you see at the moment in terms of acquisitions? 
Okay. I would say more and more potential for litigation. Oh, we'd um, agree. I, we'd yeah, agree. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I, it, you know, I, I don't know if this is timely or whether I would necessarily want the business environment to uh, be exposed to the same kind of challenges at the moment that media and politics are involved in. But I mean, you know, how many, how many retrospective cases will there be in the future for, for sexual harassment? Just yeah, as an right. example. So that's one thing. I mean, I, I, I don't know, I guess. But, but what's really, really getting, getting, uh, get going places at the moment, cybersecurity risks. Yeah. You know, we're finding now that due diligence is done more and more efficiently by more and more niche sub, subject experts in due diligence. No, no longer now for, you know, for a reasonable size transaction, is there somebody that manages due diligence or is there or is an accounting function that manages due diligence? We're finding due diligence specialists. We're not just finding due diligence specialists, but we're also finding due diligence specialists that have a niche in a certain area, like, for example, example, cybersecurity. Mm. You know, how, you know, one malicious individual can down the entire trading capabilities of a large business. Mm. So, you know, an, an absolutely essential component of, of due diligence now is to have proactive and uh, effective controls that basically minimize the risk of this happening and yeah. mitigate the effects if it does. Mm. Look, I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. And then, you know, and, and next, what I'd like to do maybe is drill a little bit very quickly into what the practical application is of all of this information we've been talking about today for subsets of our listeners who are the brokers and M&A advisors and, you, you know, our accountants out there. How do we turn this into something practical for them? Okay. Well, look, let's just go through this. We'll look at the accountant. We'll look at the the M&A specialist and we'll look at the actual seller. Okay, uh, great. That's a, a good way of categorizing. And I'll, and I'll, I'll just sort of give you a few off-the-cuff words in each. Now, look, the accountancy side of things, it is really, really involved in becoming uh, involved in the mindset of the client. It's understanding from a from a distance out what the uh, whether their client is actually creating value on a year-to-year basis. I mean, what is the point of an owner coming to work if their business is not increasing in value from year to year? Yeah. Yeah. You need to be, uh, there needs to be this benchmark that the accountant can turn around from year to year and say, is this business creating value? Because there's a good chance, not, not necessarily in all cases, but particularly with smaller businesses, the owner incurs more risk and less salary Mm. than their most senior employees. Mm. So why come to work? Only come to work if you're increasing value. How do you find out that whether you're increasing value or not? Well, you talk to your accountant, you become involved in things like uh, like value discovery, and you really get a benchmark as to whether you're, it's a good idea you're showing up at work in the morning or you're better off just sitting there and going playing the stock market. And really, look, to this be perfectly is, blunt with you, yeah. And this is such a good point that you make, Mark, because I think this is a direction that if accountants as a whole were running it, businesses would be very attracted to getting that sort of information from their accountants. So I, I just think it's a real opportunity for accountants out there to really provide, you know, deep value for, for their customers. Absolutely, absolutely. Now let's 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 attack. Now we're now we're, now that we've gone through the accountancy profession. Let's talk about my colleagues, the M&A professionals. 
because mm. they the, the makeup of uh, M&A professionals, it hasn't changed as quickly as uh, the accounting profession, but but we're seeing some interesting movements there as well. So we're looking at we're looking at advisors now. Now, if you if you look at who did transactions two, three, four years ago, it used to be made up of small boutique firms of two or three partners, and these were typically well-connected people. They were they were corporate refugees from the likes of <laughs> J.P. Morgan or Macquarie or or somebody like that, and they had. A Rolodex of contacts, yeah, yeah. And you went to the and, and and you went to one of these people and said, like, I've got this business, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the first thing that they would come back to you and says, look, I can make some phone calls, or I know a few people, or something like that. And it was done on a almost sort of like a a sort of like a discreet sort of gentleman's club mm. type process. Now that has all changed, and that's when when I when I established uh, strategic transactions. That's one of the shifts that I saw uh, occurring, and I just felt that it was really really unfair that business sellers weren't getting the true value to their business because there wasn't enough effort being made mm. by their advisors to ensure that they maximized value. Yeah, all right. right. So what we're seeing right across the industry now is the impact of technology. There are now more and more tools and technologies that are that are there to assist with reporting, with integration, and because post-merger integration is one of the key issues because that's where a lot of the uh, business mm. value is achieved or it's lost mm. based on that. So there's now there are now global listing databases to to facilitate better cross-border deals. So mm-hmm. that now so that now it, it becomes just as easy for me to find a potential American buyer as I can an Australian buyer for a particular type of business. And those are facilitated like techno- through technologies like uh, Intralinks. Mm. There's much, much more information now on precedent transactions that are occurring around the world thanks to the likes of technologies such as PitchBook. Mm. We talked about, oh, well, you, well, you talked about modeling beforehand. Obviously, I, I, you know, I can't speak highly enough about Madano in terms of uh, better, uh, better quality modeling. We're, we're working with Madano at the moment. We're making sure. Oh, you're great. Absolutely, yes. Yes, it's actually thanks to your podcast, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did say that I was going to listen to it on the plane. <laughs> oh, that's great. We, we're Absolutely. glad to facilitate. But, 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 but what it's done is it's given mid-market businesses access to the same tools that only the big investment banks before ha- yeah. had beforehand, because because yeah. you know if you wanted to build if you wanted to build a, a model, you went to you went to one of these big banks and they would produce you this fantastic model, incredibly complex, cost an absolute load of money, and mm. you couldn't use it yourself. Mm. All right. Whereas what Madano have done, and I and I, I don't know if this is the right word to describe this, but what they've actually done is they've commodified. The whole yeah. thing. They've made it simple. They've created. Yeah. The, they've made it like a jigsaw. They've commoditized it. They have done it in a very, very rational way. And they've said, "Hey, look, we know what the problems are with Excel. Let's bring in something that actually makes Excel a whole lot easier and a whole lot more powerful, and the people can use it properly." And so, all we need to do is you build the deal models on top of that. You give it to the client, and the client can use it over and over again. They can use it for rolling forecasts or anything, and the client themselves can actually do their budgeting and their forecasting based on that. And isn't that, a, you know, a fabulous example of an innovative approach to a problem that was sitting there? I, um, I, I think it's great. Absolutely. So that's, that's how I see things as an advisor. Now, let's, 
let's drill into that uh, just just a small yeah. amount more. So so the opportunities for advisors here are to get deeper, do you think, and to d- jump on board some of these technology opportunities to deliver a deeper service for their clients. Is that effectively what you're saying? Is the opportunity there? It's not an opportunity to do it. It's a crime not to do it because you're because <laughs> you're, you're, you're cheating your client. You're there. Yeah. You're there to maximise the value of your client's business. That's why you're there. Yeah. All right. And you don't do that through the old boys network. Mm. Perfect. <laughs> All right. So what's our um? What, what was our next component there? I think we we're going to talk about. Okay. Let me just chuck in a couple of points here from the actual seller's perspective. Yeah. And there's one thing that. I always hammer apart from modeling and, and, and value discovery. And that is the other thing is competitive intelligence. All right. Now, we get so much data about what's going on in the world about our particular industry and how shifts are taking place. But what I'm seeing in very, very successful businesses that are coming to market is the ability of their CEO to really, really get the landscape how their business is evolving, what the main competitive opportunities they have, what their threats are, where the business will be in five years, what industries are merging together, where the opportunities are between industries, et cetera, et cetera. And that just doesn't come by accident or by setting up Google Alerts or anything like that. It actually comes by sitting down with a with a strategist or, or, or a, a futurist. There's there's lots and lots of futurists around now. A competitive intelligence person and actually sitting down and saying, well, you know, we're five years out. What is the business going to look like in five mm. years' time? All right. How are things going to evolve? Once we know how things are going to evolve, we're going to make sure that the products and that with services that we build are going to be appropriate to that Mm -hmm. future market, okay? And so I would urge, and I can tell the difference between somebody who's been through that exercise and somebody that hasn't. Is that right? Absolutely, because, you know, there are are people you can sit there with and they can can draw a Porter's Five Forces model and they can say this is happening there and this is happening there. And they tend to also be people. They're not, they're not, they're, they're confident within themselves but they don't particularly brag because they they know what yeah. the threats are. They not don't just know what the threats are, but they know how to mitigate mm. those threats. And so when the buyer comes along and says, hey, what happens if XYZ happens, there's a response to that and that response is rational mm. and believable. Mm. Okay, great. So being properly prepared, I guess, like that's the, you know, that's... Being properly prepared, absolutely. And of course, you can go through all the standard things like make the business more scalable, make sure that you've got a succession plan, make sure that uh, your staff are motivated. There there is a checklist of them and there are a whole bunch of people that will give you again that checklist. What a great discussion here today. Thanks, Mark, so much for coming on to the podcast to talk about all of these matters. The, The first question I actually have for you before we close off is when are you producing your next annual review? Um, I would suspect that by the time we finish the numbers and the analysis and we've been through uh, every transaction, it's probably going to be about February, March next year. But look, to be honest with you, if you actually look at the content of our current one, it's really everything that you need 
for uh, for both a buyer, a seller, or an advisor. They know that the trends are, are still the same. We've broken down things by industry. We've broken things down by, by motivations of buyers by industry. We've looked at cross-border transactions. We've looked at uh, sales to publics and private companies. And we have done a six-monthly analysis, and the figures don't shift that much. And look, it's so comprehensive. I, I think it's great. So, And if people mm. want a copy of this, um, I, presumably yeah. they can get a copy from your website. Is is that how they get a copy? Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's a. I think there's a little pop-up is when you come onto our website that sort of asks you to register yourself. But if you if if you just uh, search within the site for um, M&A review, there, there's a copy there. Or um, my email address is Mark Ostrin. Um, do I? I guess I probably need to spell that, don't I? <laughs> but spell it out for people who, um, well, I'll tell our listeners now, if you're running on the beach right yep. at this time listening to this podcast or you're driving in the car, don't worry, you don't need a pen to write this all down. Just head over to our show okay. notes at thedealroompodcast.com. Okay. But Mark, spell it out for um, for our listeners who've got their pen in their hands right now. Okay. <laughs> the organised ones. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, so it's, it, it's Mark with a K. And then O-S-T-R-Y-N, Austrin, at strategictransactions.com.au. Brilliant. Okay, fabulous. All right. So use that email, Mark Austrin at strategictransactions.com.au. If you want to contact Mark to get a copy of the review that they produce or head over to his website at strategictransactions.com.au. And as I said, we'll also have a link in our show notes and on our website at thedealroompodcast.com. That's it for our two-part series with Mark Ostrin from Strategic Transactions, in which we've been reviewing the trends over the past couple of years in mid-market M&A activity. As a quick recap, in this episode, we discussed a checklist of considerations that businesses ought to prepare or consider before going to market. We also identify some threats in the merger and acquisition space that you need to be aware of. And finally, we closed out the series with Mark's hot tips for accountants, brokers, advisors, and sellers. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, if you haven't already listened to the first episode of this two-part series, head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com or through our website at aspectlegal.com.au and look for episode 24. Or of course, you can just flick back through iTunes or Stitcher. If you're interested in the trends in M&A activity, you might also want to go back and check out one of the first episodes of this podcast way back at episodes two and three, where I provide an overview of the business sale and acquisition cases that have been hitting the courts in order so that you can be aware of what not to do in a transaction. So if you're interested in looking at some of those legal elements, head back to episodes two and episodes three. And of course, if you'd like to contact any of our extremely experienced lawyers at Aspect Legal, or if you'd like a transcript of this podcast episode so that you can read it in more detail, just head over to thedealroompodcast.com. All right. Well, look, thanks again for listening in. I'm Joanna Oki, and you've been listening to The Deal Room Podcast, brought to you by the commercial legal firm Aspect Legal. See you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. 
Thanks for listening to the Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au. Thank you.